welcome to Bob Into Buildings. I'm Bob Harrison. In this six-part series, I'll be visiting more buildings on the island that have a story to tell. The previous two series are still available on the Manx Radio website. Just look for Bob Into Buildings under podcasts. Tonight, we don't look at one building, but buildings that have been erected in the past. I'm talking about interment. This was during World War I and World War II. My guest is Yvonne Cresswell, social history curator at the MH, and I asked her when the first internees arrived on the island. War was declared at the beginning of August 1914. The next day, Parliament in Westminster has already enacted all of the legislation for the identification and the rounding up of enemy aliens. So, you know, you're left thinking that in 1914 they really were sort of waiting for war to happen so they had everything on the books ready to go and so you know the legislation is there in the beginning of August and then the first internees are coming to the Isle of Man on the 22nd of September and they go to what is actually a ready-made internment camp it's Cunningham's holiday camp so basically they go into accommodation that literally only a few weeks, months before, had been full of holiday makers, um, and they go into all the bell tents and everything, um, and it's just basically a case of putting the barbed wire around it. The problem is, it seems a perfect solution because you have accommodation, you have dining facilities, you have kitchen facilities, but It's been built for people to stay in for one week in the height of summer. So as the autumn and the winter begin, it becomes increasingly obvious that this is not suitable accommodation for permanent uh, incarceration of, um, and it's men, they're male internees, but for the incarceration of uh, the internees into October, November. And the site that in the height of summer gives you beautiful sea views and views over Douglas Bay also means that you are in the teeth of every gale that comes across the Irish it's Sea. quite high up, isn't it? Exactly. <laughs> um, and this all culminates in the November of 1914 in a riot in the dining hall. Um, basically, there's been issues with the food and um, real sort of problems. I mean, you know, sort of, there's talk about weevils and all sorts of things and um, basically a riot starts the guard who have got rifles are panicked because what happens if these guys get out of the dining hall get out of the camp it's next to Douglas so there's all sorts of issues going on so they shoot over the heads of the um, internees to try and sort of quell the riot Uh, The problem then is that in everyone trying to flee the dining hall, people sadly get trampled and there are fatalities and somebody dies as a result of a ricochet bullet. So as a result of that, um, the camp that has already been started in construction at Nikalo, they're basically, they're getting that sort of speeded up so they can open Nikalo and then they reorganize um, the Douglas camp. So if you think of where Shoprite is on Victoria Road, 
the business park, which is where the old Cunningham's camp is, what basically happened is the Cunningham's camp, with its beautiful buildings and then the chalets and the bell tents, that becomes a privilege camp where about 500 internees live in single and twin accommodation and you pay a bit extra for that. And then what's now ShopRite and the ShopRite car park is where they build a series of barracuts and uh, in those barracks they then put what's called the ordinary camp. So that's about sort of 2,000 or so. And um, it means that you are dividing up the sort of internee population. There's also actually a Jewish camp as well, and the Jewish camp is for those um, internees who are Orthodox Jews and want to have um, to celebrate the Jewish festivals, but more importantly, observe Jewish dietary rules so they can have a kosher kitchen. Um, and what I find interesting is the Douglas camp is almost a microcosm of Edwardian society. It's very hierarchical. You've got, as I say, a privileged camp. You've got an ordinary camp. Um, you then got, actually, um, a segregated Jewish camp. So in microcosm, that's Edwardian society. The camp that they've built in Nikalo is quite different. The first camp, which is actually the fields where we now have the Royal Agricultural Show, that becomes um, a camp for 5,000. And within this camp, it's split into compounds. So each compound is about 1,000 internees. And then within the compound, you have several huts. So they've worked out that if anything kicks off, you're already able to institute a lockdown for security reasons and segregate any problem and lock it down quite quickly. But they realise that this um, camp for 5,000 at Nikalo isn't going to be big enough. So then they build a second camp, um, which if you go to the World Agricultural Show, that field alongside the lane, which is where the exhibitors park, that's camp two. And then over time, camp two isn't big enough. So then they um, build camp three. So each camp is another 5,000. So I really feel sorry for the engineers, the officers who were in charge of actually planning the infrastructure as regards drainage, water supply, etc. Because you put in an infrastructure for 5,000 people and then promptly the authorities say, right, we now build another camp. So now you have to put in the infrastructure for 10,000. And then they build another camp, so it's 15. So they're constantly playing catch-up. The Manx civilian staff, of which there was a large number working in the camp, because actually the camp was built by Manx tradesmen who were working as like in a sense almost the, the sort of the team leaders within a workforce of internees so you'd have a master plumber and then all of his plumbers would be internees or you'd have a master joiner and they'd, they'd be Manx tradesmen who were too old to join up so their war service was to actually um, work at Nikalo's um, and that's building the camp and maintenance and all the rest of it. Um, so you've got Manx um, staff as well and then you've got the internees, many of whom have been in Britain 20-30 years and you suddenly realise these guys probably support the same football teams, read the same newspapers, smoke the same cigarettes 
Um, and a lot of them are about the same age. So you're left sort of thinking, it will have been very strange. Images that we have of Nokalo, it's a traditional, can we put it, a German prisoner of war camp, basically, isn't it? What's interesting is that the very, f the Camp 1 was built um, using the techniques of building a military camp with barracks. They then realised that this technique was actually far too slow and was using far too much in terms of um, the sort of resources and materials. So what they then start doing is what you might almost call um, sort of flat pack huts. So they ship over basically hut ends, hut panels, roof panels and then you sort of um, build them from these flat packs so you put in your foundations and then using these panels and it means you can actually get the camp in inverted commas because actually you know you've got a lot of tradesmen there thrown up quite quickly. How were the people perceived by the man? Different people you would have had a different amount of contact you know a lot of people will have had you know Dad coming home with tales about what's happening in the camp. Um, equally well, a lot of the um, military guard will have been billeted on local families. And um, I know my predecessor, Dr. Larch Garrett, said that she could remember from the 60s onwards that you went into any cottage or farmhouse in the west of the island and there was probably a couple of Nicola bones on the mantelpiece or a little wooden box which had been given to them or they'd bought from one of the internees. So it shows just how much sort of contact there would have been. They must have done a very good job because with the outbreak of World War II, presumably it was, oh, Iron Man works, send them there. Um, yes, I mean, I, th I think there will have been that sort of automatic um, sort of right. They had decided that the Nicalo model, because what's interesting also with Nicalo is that it wasn't just growing because of mass internment. They had a policy where they were closing internment camps in mainland Britain and then moving people from these smaller scattered camps to what basically becomes a mega camp at Nikalo and I think for the Second World War they realised we don't have the time, the materials to be able to build a camp from scratch so it's a sort of different system of internment in the Second World War where they take the, they requisition boarding houses and hotels. That must and have been an upheaval. Oh it totally, um, I mean the boarding house keepers and hoteliers are given sort of you know, no more than two weeks' notice. And basically, uh, for the hoteliers whose homes are requisitioned, um, so that's all the men, male camps in Douglas, Onken, Ramsey and Peel. All of um, those hoteliers, boarding housekeepers, have to find a new home and a new livelihood and move what they can out of their property um, within two weeks. It's a different story in Port Erin and Port St Mary because in Port Erin and Port St Mary, where the women and children were sent, they put barbed wire around the villages, bulleted the women and children with the local community. So for the boarding house keepers in Port Erin and Port St Mary, they're not losing their home and they're not losing their livelihood. Instead, they have got um, guaranteed... Um, sort of full occupation 
of their property um, for the duration. Um, Were they paid? Well, people joke about the internees being called um, guinea pigs and that they would actually, um, the hoteliers were paid um, one guinea per internee. Um, now, some people um, might have actually had internees with them from May 1940 all the way through to 1944. What's interesting is that whereas in the First World War, the vast majority of the internees, once they were interned, and whether that was September 1914 or sometime in 1915 with the mass internment, that was it until 1919. Um, and interestingly, they weren't even released after the armistice. They had to wait till 1919 for release. And many were forcibly repatriated back to Germany or to Austria. So did it matter that they had English families, mm. British families? They were um, repatriated uh, and in a sense still viewed as enemy aliens. In the Second World War, it's quite different because the vast majority of the people who, in a sense, were rounded up as enemy aliens in the Second World War were actually refugees from Nazi Germany and uh, occupied Europe. And they had come to Britain because, either because they were Jewish and or were viewed as political dissidents yeah. because horror of horror they were socialists or communists or trade unionists or whatever. Um, anybody who was in danger from the Nazi regime who had been coming to Britain um, up until the outbreak of war in September 1939, um, they got to Britain, thought they'd found asylum, um, but as soon as war was declared, they then had to register as enemy aliens. They had to go before tribunals where they uh, were interviewed by sort of, let's say, local magistrates and other people who are good standing. And um, all their credentials were uh, reviewed. And basically, it was a case of, if you were seen as a security risk, you were immediately arrested and incarcerated, category A. If they thought, we're fairly sure you're safe, but we're not 100% certain, you're category B, you can't live within, let's say, 20 miles of the coast, military installations, and we want to know where you are. Um, but actually, we, we, we're pretty much certain you're safe. Category C, which the vast majority were, were viewed as completely, um, you know, non-security risk, genuine refugees posing no security risk whatsoever. So... People have managed to get to Britain and think they're safe. War breaks out. Then it looks like, oh, we're now an enemy alien. We go before a tribunal. But it's fine. We've been identified as being no security risk. With the combination of the Dunkirk evacuation, the fall of the Netherlands, the fall of France, suddenly there's this paranoia of the invasion. And it, for the summer... Of 1940, I don't think we can fully appreciate just how terrifying it was because we know how the story ends. In the summer of 1940, people weren't talking about if there's an invasion, it's when there's an invasion. Um, there was also this view um, that 
people had um, the fall of France and everything was more to do with fifth columnists within the population. Um, so there was this paranoia that all of the, amongst these genuine refugees, there were saboteurs, fifth columnists. So you then have this colothalot mass internment, and starting in May 1940 is the rounding up of these enemy aliens, starting with Category B, but also including the Category C. The first camp, uh, for first camps on the island, is uh, the one at Ramsey, which is the Moag camp, which is the boarding houses along the Moag. You then have um, women and children going to Port Erin and Port St Mary, where everybody is behind barbed wire with the internees uh, billeted with the families. When you start looking at just all of the installations, and if you'd walked along Douglas Promenade, you'd have gone past Valkyrie, you would have gone past um, the Sefton camp, which was based at the Sefton Hotel. As you went past Villa Marina Gardens, you would have seen all sorts of weird and wonderful equipment being used for training. Um, actually, if you'd looked back to Douglas Head, the building up there was... Uh, being used for naval training as well, mm. what's now uh, Manx Radio. As you're walking along the prom, the area just before um, Castle Mona, those two blocks and the blocks going back, um, that was Central Camp. And when you look at it, it is literally just four blocks of hotels with a tiny bit of promenade, half a road either side and at the back, and then a little lane um, at between the blocks of hotels, and that ha held 2,000 men. Um, I what's interesting is, I wouldn't want to have been in Central Camp because it was incredibly small and you had very little space to walk about. And I'm sure that in the summer of 1940, internees said, oh, this is a lovely place to be. If I've got, you know, I've got a room at the front and I've got amazing sea views. I do wonder whether by November, December 1940, when their curtain is horizontal with the ceiling because, and the windows are making enough noise to deafen you because they're rattling in the um, storms, whether you might be thinking you'd wanted a room on the back. At the top end of the prom, at the Metropole, you had the Metropole camp. Um, for the the Metropole was in a sense always Italian. The palace was predominantly Italian, uh, but did have other nationalities at different times. And then you have the Onken camp, um, which as I say is Belgravia Road mm. and Royal Avenue. Um, so everywhere either had barbed wire around it or was a military installation, or um, your property, um, if it hadn't been requisitioned, might be full of the military guard um, who were being billeted with you. Equally well, some people were on a list whereby if military came to the island on R&R, &R, um, what would happen is they would be given a dress that they could just turn up and say, I'm staying here for the next two weeks. Um, and I've heard people sort of say about sort of relatives having sort of everyone from free Polish and free French airmen and all sorts of different people just coming off the boat, <laughs> knocking on the door and saying, Hello, I've got your address. <laughs> it, it was 
very different times and with everything focused on the war effort um, it is interesting how once you start looking it's far more than just the internment camps and that's why I've said you have to almost think of the island as being this militarised zone. And of course the, the men on the island are across at war. Exactly. So the island is full of women and old people. Well, um, and, and also children. only a sort of certain demographic of women because a lot of the younger women are away on whether it's war service or training or working as nurses or as teachers. So it, the, the whole island's demographic has, has changed quite dramatically. Because the people who were interned hadn't um, committed a crime, they were not criminals, it was felt inappropriate to be keeping records on them. But it's interesting that um, over the years, and with a lot more research going on about First and Second World War, um, how sort of documents and paperwork and just how more, what I always say, more pieces of the jigsaw puzzle are um, just turning up. So I don't think that at any point you can sort of say, oh, we now know everything we can possibly know about internment, either First or Second World War. And I love the fact, I mean, I've been at the museum 33 years, and in that time, um, the number of times people would say, oh, I've got so-and-so, don't know if you're going to be interested. And suddenly you go, wow, you have no idea, that is a very big piece of the jigsaw puzzle. Or something that you were told and were given information about 30 years ago, you'll get something today, and you go, that fits together, that now explains that. In some respects, I suppose that's the good side of, it, of the internet. Well, it's wonderful, and... Um, when we did the Living with the Wire exhibition in 1994, which I had the great privilege to meet um, a lot of ex-Second World War internees, and for the most part, none of them had actually talked about their internment experience um, because it's all tied up with the refugee experience of coming to Britain. And for the most part, because they were refugees, um, it is part of the wider Holocaust story. Um, because if you got to Britain as a refugee, um, there's a very good likelihood that however many of your close family came with you, you, have no, you had no extended family because they were lost in the concentration camps. Um, so people, they got to Britain, then they were interned, and what's interesting is, unlike the First World War, when people might be held for like four or five years, for a lot of them in the Second World War, internment could be anything from three months to 18 months, and then they were released to work on um, the war effort, because that's all they desperately wanted to do. And things like the camp newspapers, um, you look at the artwork, you look at what's being written, and these are... Uh, tools of propaganda to say, look, we are His Majesty's most loyal enemy aliens. Please, we want to get out of here. We have actually more need and desire to fight the Nazi regime than even the British did. They wanted to be part of the Allied war effort. The impression I always got talking to people was when they packed up, because the first you'd know you were being released was at evening roll call in your camp, your name would be 
announced, you'd have that evening to say bye to everybody, pack everything, and in the morning, first thing, you were down to um, the sea terminal, you were on the boat, back to Liverpool, starting a new life. And actually, this is your new home country, and you're not revisiting that time. And I came to the conclusion that it was things like 1989 and the 50th anniversary of the start of the war. And people started talking and thinking, oh, wow, there's not many of us left, because suddenly realising how many people had died and then realising if we don't talk about what happened to us, these memories, stories will go with us and nobody will know. On Bob Into Buildings tonight, I've been talking to Yvonne Cresswell about internment on the island during both world wars. You can listen again to tonight's programme on programmes from the first two series as podcasts on maxradio.com. I'll be back next week at the same time for another featured building in this third series of Bob Into Buildings. I'm Bob Harrison. Good evening.